If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 18. Mark 18. We've, we've been looking at uh, the parables of Jesus, but, but we've been uh, settling in chapter 18, which, which has two parables in it, but it's part of a broader uh, metaphor. We wouldn't call it a, a parable, of course, but it's a broader metaphor. And we're looking at the second of those two parables here, but it's still the, the metaphor goes throughout the entire chapter. So Matthew 18. Uh, I am deaf. I have no idea what I just said or did. There is no Mark 18. Mark 1 is bad enough. I think we can agree. We're in Matthew chapter 18, Mark. (laughs) So what are we talking about? Jesus, stand up with me as we read from the Gospel of Matthew. Starting at verse 21, not to be confused with Mark. Verse 21, the evangelist Matthew writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will, will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? It's many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. He began to settle. One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him, forgave him the debt. And when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servants fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servants, I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay off all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, as always, we ask you to open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our hands, our mouth, and our feet that we will go in obedience uh, to your gospel. And Lord, what a challenging text this is. Uh, we live in an age where forgiveness is, is um, almost a dirty word uh, that we, 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 we can't comprehend uh, that that. You've called us to this, and yet may we see the gospel. As we have been forgiven much, may we learn to forgive a little. And Lord, may I decrease so that you may increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Have a seated. Oh yeah, said my good friend who was in an argument. Oh yeah? Well, you, oh yeah? Well, well, you're dumb. And that was the end of the argument. Checkmate, right? Now, of course, the argument went from between two people who were just had enough of each other to all of a sudden we were all laughing at this comeback, right? And that is actually what ended the argument. We were in high school at lunchtime, and he got so frustrated with what was being said with him, so frustrated he couldn't think of a good comeback, and that was the best he could do. I couldn't help but think of my, my good friend still, still good friends with him even today. He had a, a sort of a personality you, you would, I think you guys would really enjoy. But I, I remember uh, that moment every time I turn on the TV. 
I think our, our current discourse as Americans is no more mature than my high school buddy. Oh yeah? Oh yeah? Well, you're dumb. I don't know if, if you know this or not, but we Americans, we're, we're not getting along very well. Have you, have you noticed that? Here we are a year later into COVID, and it's very clear that we're not getting along. After all, we understand that to be human is, is to be in a fallen world, to, to be in conflict. We understand this. You're not going to get along with everyone. And there's conflict everywhere we turn. The problem is often how, how petty it's gotten, how over the top it's gotten, how we, we generally seem to hate one another. And we sit here as Christians thinking, what is the answer to all of this? What do we do with the division of our nation or the brokenness of our homes or the pain within our soul? What is a remedy to all of this? What does the gospel have to say about this? And we come to a text like this, and, and I think what we discover here is one of the greatest gifts Christians can give to our culture, to our homes, and to our soul, and to the world. And that is the gift of forgiveness. Let's start here in verses 21 to 22 with the, the setting, the setting here. Now, remember that, that a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Did you get that? A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. You've heard me say that before. And what we oftentimes do is we take Matthew 18 and, and we isolate it from everything else, right? So there's this passage about uh, let all the children come to me, and, and, and that's cute. And, and then there's that passage about church discipline. We want to skip that part. There's a part there about forgiveness, and, and then that'll preach, right? And we, we, we do this with this chapter, failing to see how uh, the evangelist Matthew puts all of these things together for us, right? You can't read one passage without putting it in the context of the other passage. And so I've put this up here uh, with, with each passage that we've looked at. We begin with that only children can enter the kingdom of God. You remember that the disciples are bragging about who the man, right? No, I'm the man. You ain't the man. I'm, I'm the man here, right? And Jesus brings in the child and says, no, no, no. You have to be like this child to enter the kingdom. And then we see this talk of how it is that we treat one another as children in the kingdom of God. And Jesus used this real striking language there. We see him talking about caring for children, the discipline of children, and now we see the forgiveness of children. All of this is to show that you, you can't isolate one passage from the other. And we see this particularly with, with the discipline of children and the forgiveness of children. What we often want to do is we want to highlight and emphasize one of those at the cost of the other. So, so some here may, may think, well, I don't know all that stuff about what he said about disciplining children and the role of the church. I don't know what I think about that. But forgiveness, yeah, let's talk about that. There may be others who think, well, no, for far too long the American church has overlooked church discipline, so let's pound church discipline. That's the most important thing we need to talk about. And they do that at the cost of forgiveness. What we need to see here is that there is a tension here, a purposeful tension how do you know that you're not leaning too far over one to the other? Well, discipline, we should say, without grace is unacceptable. At the same time, forgiveness apart from grace is equally unacceptable. And one of the things I've learned immediately once I became a parent, had that new parent smell and holding the baby and all that sort of stuff, is, is the, my parents that my children have gotten to know 
they are different people than the ones I remember, right? Some of you are grandparents, right? I probably wouldn't recognize you before you were grandparents, right? You've met my parents. That is not the same people. I remember a few years ago, uh, one of our kids, you know, asked, you know, you know, grandpa, grandma, whatever, can, can we do this? And like, oh, yeah, sure. I was like, no, 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 stop, stop right now. If that were me and my brother and sister at any age, like I'm 36, at 36, if I were to ask that, you would have thrown a fit. You would have said no. And I believe my daddy says, well, son, as you age, you just learn things. No, no, no. As you age, you get soft. That's what I'm learning from you. You're getting soft. Now, is it a good thing that grandparents are soft towards their grandkids? Yeah. You want your children to go to grandma and grandpa's and just just have a a grand old time. It's to stay up as late as they want. Have a little extra sugar, right? They can have all the sugar they want at grandma and grandpa, right? All you want. Just just give me, you know, a a day or two to, you know, without them with all that sugar. Uh, But at the same time. If all you're getting is spoiled and loved on apart from discipline, that's an unhealthy child. We would equally say a child who's only getting discipline and not deep and abiding and unending affection, that is unhealthy too. So what we see here is that tension between discipline and grace. Now, Peter's question in this passage really hints at this, right? Go up to verse 15. Notice this question. Hey, Jesus, if your brother sins against you, now remember, your brother in the context is fellow believers, children, siblings. If your brother sins against you, um, uh, go and tell his fault between you and him alone. Notice the context there. So so what do we do whenever we are sinned against? And Jesus follows this pattern. There's self-discipline, there's one-on-one, there is small group, there is the the, the local congregation, right? We went through all of that and spent... Uh, Two services looking at it. And then go down to verse 21. Peter says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As much as seven times? You see the tension within the text itself. Now, between verse 15 and verse 21, we see the similarities. Both ask how a Christian should respond when they are sinned against. Both ask that. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you. Verse 21, how often should I forgive my brother? Now, the differences are, are there as well. In verses 15 to 20, we see that uh, the focus is objective. How can we as believers respond to one another, disciple one another towards being more like Jesus, right? It's an objective issue, right? If there is someone in sin, how do we respond with that? Well, first, if you're sinning against me, we need to have a conversation about this, Right? It is very, and if that doesn't work, then there's a process to follow. Yet in verse 21, 34, it's, it's, it's more, it, it's more uh, subjective. What should be my immediate response to hurt and to be a sin against? Now, the answer to this question is the difference between being gospel-centered and self-centered. Peter suggests that we should forgive seven times. Now, that is an incredible, that is incredible, right? Let's be honest. You and I rarely forgive someone seven times. Well, two strikes, one more and you act, right? Well, one of my favorite Bushisms, remember President Bush, remember him? He he said, you know, fool me once. You know, he always did the hand things. Shame on you. Fool me twice. You remember this Bushism? And then his mind went blank and he couldn't remember the rest of it. 
just don't fool me again, right? That's how he concluded, right? Just in this awkward pause. Oh, I miss the Bushisms. Whenever he was, well, I'm going to stop there. You can't mention the president and make a joke at the same, same time. But Peter's suggestion here is you forgive someone seven times. Now, that is more than double to what the rabbis taught. They were three strikes and you're out. Peter says, look, I'm going to be super spiritual because I'm really the greatest in the kingdom. I'm going to say seven. But even that, Jesus says, is enough. Jesus says 70 times seven. Now, your, your translation may say 77. It's a matter of manuscripts. I favor the, the 70 times seven. Uh, and the reason is because there's biblical precedent for this. If you were to go back to Genesis chapter four, now you remember Genesis four. Y'all have been coming on Wednesday nights. Maybe you're familiar with this. In Genesis four, you have two major events. One, Cain kills Abel, right? And, and then you get a genealogy. And we always skip that. In that genealogy of Cain, a descendant of Cain, there's a man named Lamech. Lamech is like Cain on steroids. He, he, instead of having one wife, he has two wives. He's the first bigamist in, 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 in the world. And he commits murder because this guy offended him on Facebook, right? So he just murders the dude. And we get this. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, there's your seven, then Lamech, 77-fold. So what I think Jesus is doing here is he's saying, look, what you want to be is the opposite of Lamech. If Lamech wants to be avenged 77-fold, we are going to do 70 times 7. But the basic point here is that one ought to always forgive. That's the basic point. Look, look, when you're sinned against, your immediate response should be that of grace. Immediate response should be, should be forgiveness. Now, to illustrate that, Jesus gives us a parable. And this parable is in three scenes. First scene in verses 23 uh, to, to uh, 29. Um, and we're introduced to this king here. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts of his servants. Now, when you see the word king there, he's probably more like a governor. Now, Herod and Pilate essentially have the same job. One has chosen for himself the title of king because he's a male, right? That's just something a guy would do for himself. Well, why be a governor if you can be king? But they're essentially the same thing. So, so, so you may, it may be helpful to think of him as, as uh, a governor. Caesar's still in charge. He's more of a governor. And he's doing an audit, right? That's basically what verse 24 is. He's doing an audit of his expenses, and he realizes that there is a guy there who owes him a lot of money. In fact, it is said to be 10,000 talents. Now, what you'll get in a lot of commentaries and a lot of preachers is, is, is they'll take modern uh, 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 monetary value and, and, and translate it from, from what you have there and bring it up to today. The problem with that is it doesn't quite work. The largest number in Greek that you could use was 10,000. It's like now you may say uh, a bajillion. I don't know. I just made that word up, right? You, right we, we, we have these numbers that we don't know what they mean, but they sound really big, right? And, 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 and we don't want to use the word infinite, so we make up these words. It's basically what he's saying here, 10,000 talents. The point here is, 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 is that he could not ever pay this amount back. It's like student loans. You'll never pay them off, right? Well, in verse 25, the audit shows us, he realizes that he could not pay. His master ordered him to be so with his wife and children. This is typical, right? To pay bills, you got your nine to five, yes, but you can sell yourself into basically be an indentured servant as well as with your family, and all of them together can help pay off your debts. And so the master is saying, the governor is saying, look, you owe all of this money, and therefore, uh, 
this is what we're going to do in order to pay, to pay this back. We'll see something similar to the prodigal son uh, this evening that he offers uh, basically to, to do the same thing. Um, and what does he do? He does the same thing we do every time the bill collectors call four times a day, right? He begs, begs for mercy, begs for more time. He falls on his knees, implores him, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. Now, to give him credit, he, he believes that, that he, he is responsible for paying back what he borrowed. But everyone knows he can't do it. The man is asking for more time. The king quickly realizes what he needs is grace. He cannot pay this back. It is far too much. And so the king, being gracious in verse 27, says, Out of pity for him, the master uh, released him, forgave him of the debt. Just, just forgives him. Now, that is grace. That is grace. The servant hasn't earned anything. He doesn't deserve anything. Yet out of pity and for mercy, he is forgiven. Whenever I was a kid, there was a guy driving around in Owen County, and he had his truck. And on the back of his truck, he had like a little cardboard thing taped to the back of his truck. He's a redneck, like, like you couldn't tell. And, and he had duct tape on it. Well, what he did is he had made a sign. It said, six more payments and this baby is mine. I love that, right? I, I've thought about doing that when we were paying off our car. Like, like, 24 more payments, right? And this baby's mine, right? Uh, but he had that. And you could see where he had marked out, you know, seven. And now it said six. It, um, see him the next month. Marks out six. And, and then, then, then he has five. That is what the servant thinks he will be able to do. If he works hard enough, proves himself well enough, he can then earn back uh, what it is that he, he had taken. But here, however, the king unexpectedly and without any obligation takes that debt upon himself. The debt that was, now, was then yours is now mine. After all, there was only one person in all the kingdom who could pay off that debt. And that was the king himself. The king released him and forgave him. Both words are important. Those are the words of freedom and grace. So that's the first scene. You've got a slave that is under great debt. You'll never pay it off, yet the king graciously forgives him. And then in verse 27 to 30, we see the second scene. And if the first scene illustrates grace, the second one illustrates hypocrisy. And you see it immediately in verse 28. When that same servant went out, it almost reads as if he immediately found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. Now, now again, we, we know what these, these numbers mean. One denarii is, is a day's wage. 100 denarii is 100 days' wage. Okay? So it's a few, few months of, of work. Now, don't overread that, right? 10,000 was, was to say an insurmountable amount. 100 denarii is to say it's significant but not overwhelming. If, if you had a debt, we'll call it a mortgage, that was about six months right, of, 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 your, of your income, uh, you, you, could, you could figure that out. right? Interest rate might get you. right? You could figure that out. It's not insurmountable. You work hard, pay your bills on time. You, you will eventually pay that off. right? Six more payments and this baby is mine. Yet what this servant does, the one who has forgiven much, refuses to forgive very little. So much so he goes and he 
he threatens, even to the point of violence, he chokes the other servant and says, pay me what you owe me. And notice verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Now, where have I read that before? It's verbatim to what the first servant had said to the king. Forgive me. Be patient with me. I will pay you back. Yet when he was the one in debt, he thought it was justified to be forgiven. Yet when he is the one who is owed a debt, all of a sudden grace goes out the window. This is the height of hypocrisy. One who is forgiven much should be quick to forgive little. Well, that leads to the third scene, verses 31 to 35. There we see that his fellow servants are shocked by what it is they have witnessed. They go to the king and they explain what happens. And... uh, And so verse 32, his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servants, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Now, you agree with the king? Yeah, (laughs) right? We we all do, right? I mean, we all agree with this. I mean, this, this is common sense. He's not doing anything out of the ordinary. We all understand this. If you've been forgiven a whole lot of things, you should act like it and how you forgive others. Right? We, we get this. And so, verse 34, he is given the punishment he should have received at the beginning. In anger, his master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. Now, will he ever pay off that debt? No. No, he won't. Think of it this way. If, if you were charged by the federal government, sent to prison to work the rest of your life until the federal deficit was paid off, would you ever pay that off? No, 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 you will not. I just, no, you will not, right? It's an insurmountable amount of money. So too, he will be in prison for the rest of his life. And this is Jesus' conclusion, verse 35. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, Jesus is not denying that salvation is eternal. Rather, he makes it clear that those who have been radically forgiven by God radically forgive others. That is to say, forgiveness is a two-way street. The forgiven forgive. Those who are shown grace are show grace. Those who are shown mercy show mercy. Those who are shown love show love. This is true in general. But how much is this true regarding grace? When we refuse to forgive, we, when, we, when, we can, when we refuse to forgive, what we are doing is we are saying, your sin against me surpasses my sin against my maker. And that is patently false. No one ever has, nor will anyone ever sin against you more than you have sinned against your creator. No one will ever sin against you more. And if that is the case, if you have been forgiven much as the first servant is, surely we, we can forgive a little. I think C.S. Lewis is right when he says, we must forgive all our enemies or be damned. 
So we go back to the question from Peter that started it all. How should we respond when we are offended by others? Jesus' answer is simple. We are to forgive others as much as God has forgiven us. This is a very straightforward parable, isn't it? Jesus explains it to us. The context makes it very clear. It's a very simple application. For a Christian, forgiveness is our response. And we forgive constantly, not literally whatever 70 times 7 is. Some of you who didn't go to public school, I'm sure you can do the math just fine. But that's not the point that you keep a track. Paul will say later that love is something that doesn't keep a track of all the wrongdoings. Rather, we love as Christ loved. And as we love as Christ loved, we forgive as Christ forgave, who even upon the cross did he not utter, Father, forgive them, not because they're worthy of it, not because God is obligated to do it, but because God's love is insurmountable. And he pours it out upon us. So what I want us to do, we've done this before. We've looked at this passage before. I want us to discuss again, some of these would be the same thing we've done in the past, what forgiveness is and is not. Because one thing I've found is the broad message is pretty straightforward. Forgive. What I've found with with Christians, let alone the the pagan world, is that we want that, that exhortation, forgive others, with a lot of footnotes attached to it, right? Have you noticed this how the law works? The law says this, but it has a lot of footnotes attached to it, so that way you don't really know what it is. Because we want to find our way around forgiveness. We want to say, well, I'm a very forgiving person, but there's all these footnotes attached to it. That means I can't forgive you today, right? So what, what do we mean by forgiveness? Let's start with what forgiveness is not. I find that easier. Let's narrow all that stuff out, and we can really look at what it is. What forgiveness is not. First of all, forgiveness is not denying or enabling the offense. Forgiveness is not denying or enabling that offense has been been done, right? Uh, This is an area that we, we really struggle with. We think that when I forgive someone, I am giving them permission to continue to wound me. That is not what forgiveness is. It's not it at all. It isn't enabling or denying that sin has occurred. It is recognizing sin has occurred. You don't forgive debts if no one owes you a debt. You don't forgive sin if no one has sinned against you. Forgiveness is recognizing that sin is sin. Sin wounds and sin is painful and sin breaks relationships. It is to recognize that that sin is real. Sin has effects. It should not be be enabled. Secondly, forgiveness is not covering up sin committed against us. So whenever we say, oh, no big deal. No, it is a big deal, right? This is why you have to read this passage in light of the previous passage. It is such a big deal that involves a conversation between two people. And if that sin isn't dealt with, it involves taking witnesses and small groups of spiritually mature people. And it may involve the entire congregation. This is a serious issue. So it isn't covering up sin, so it's okay, all is forgiven. No, 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 it's to recognize this is sin. And sin, it harms the person being sinned against, but it harms the person who is the the perpetrator of the sin. So we want to cover it up. Thirdly, forgiveness is not trust. I think this is the big issue here. Forgiveness is not trust. Look, forgiveness is something you can do right now. You can do it right now. You control forgiveness in your life. But trust is something that takes time to build and can be lost in an instant. Chances are there are people in, in, in your life, you, 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 you grew and everything was doing great, and then something happened. And all of a sudden, there was that pullback, wasn't it? It wasn't that you loved them less. See, you don't trust them as much. 
There was a breach there. Forgiveness happens in the moment, but, but trust does take time. This is something that is really hard, in, in particularly in, in marriage counseling, or relational counseling, is this, you understand is this, they think, well, look, look, she said she forgave me. What's the issue? It's like, I'll tell you, the issue is you're confusing forgiveness with trust. And, 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 and trust has to be something that we, we earn again. And I think this is something that young preachers don't get. They think that because they have a seminary degree, they can walk into a sanctuary and they can just tell people how it's going to be. They've not earned the trust of the congregation. I think a lot, a lot of young ministers, they, they overestimate what they can do in a year. They underestimate what they can do in 5, 10, or 20. And the difference really comes down to trust. Fourthly, forgiveness is not reconciliation. You can see how, how these last two are related. Because in order for there to be reconciliation, you need some trust. In order for there to be trust, you need, you need some reconciliation. But one of the things you need to see is forgiveness is something you control. No one is keeping you from forgiving other people. You can forgive someone. Right now, here this morning, you can forgive someone. Truly forgive someone. But it takes two people for there to be reconciliation. I've tried to counsel couples before where only one wants to reconcile, but the other doesn't. Can I tell you what happens in that relationship? No reconciliation. And I have to remind them. They get frustrated. They're like, look, you're here. They're not. What do you think is going to happen? We can work on your spiritual formation, work on your discipleship, work on you working with some of these stuff. But if you're wanting reconciliation, you need your partner here. Forgiveness is something you, you control. But reconciliation is a two-way street. And this is what makes relationships so difficult, isn't it? Because sometimes you may be willing to forgive, but they're not willing to reconcile. Well, that is a general overview of what forgiveness is not. Let's look briefly at what forgiveness is. The first thing we need to see here is that forgiveness is canceling a debt owed to you. Where did I get that from the Bible? Matthew 18. That's right there. Isn't, isn't that the whole point? He forgives a debt owed to him. So if you had a debt canceled and the bank calls you and says, hey, don't worry about it. Your debt's been taken care of. What have you discovered about that? You're free from that debt. Bill collectors won't keep calling. But likewise, forgiveness means the offender is free from making repayments. What we oftentimes do is say, yeah, I'll forgive you, but I need all. Now, restitution plays a role in reconciliation and peace. Now, I get that. But we're talking about forgiveness here. Forgiveness isn't a bargain. I will give you forgiveness, but first, just pay off half the debt. First, I need you to call my mother and apologize. First, no, no, no. Forgiveness begins first. I forgive. It is a canceling a debt owed to you. This means that forgiveness is very costly and hard. For some reason, many of us act surprised to discover that forgiveness is hard. Have you noticed that? What keeps people from forgiving isn't that they don't understand the concept. It's too difficult. It's a very difficult thing to do. Forgiving debt means that the forgiver accrues the debt owed to them. So in the story, right? So, so I owe this person a lot of money I'll never pay back. If that person says you are forgiven, complete and full, guess who now gets all the debt to their bank account? It's, it's the person that, that, that lost the money. So too, when you forgive, what you are saying is, I will take what you owe from you and put it back, back onto me. Now, I'm in debt here. You are free. You, you, and that is a costly act. 
So the costly nature of forgiveness, again, is evident in the cross, right? God forgives us not just because he's a nice guy. He forgives us because he takes our debt upon his shoulders that are, and his wrist, while his wrists are nailed to a cross. Jesus can say, Father, forgive them while he is procuring the cost of forgiveness. How is it that we, we, we can separate what Christ has done upon the cross that was costly and somehow we can forgive, but it won't hurt us. It won't cost us anything. It won't be difficult. No, no, no. It will, there will always be a cost there. Always be a cost. Secondly, forgiveness is removing the control your offender has over you. Can I just say, if you get one point of why forgiveness is so important, a practical point, other than, you know, Jesus and the cross, this would be it. This would be it. Some time ago, I was refing a game, uh, and I had one of, one of our younger students ref, uh, and, and the season had gone, I had done all the center refing, you know, because I was training these guys, and, and the coaches were, were, for the most part, good, the parents, for the most part, were good, so I thought I'd have these young, young pups out there and ref, and, and this, it was his very first game, and, and, and the head coach just threw a fit, threw a fit, we had to kick him out of the game, and he just threw a fit, and then I had a referee the next day, so I got there early, and was eating breakfast in the car, all by myself, wanted to be left alone. And this guy parks, right? And he's, he's, he's 50 yards down that way. He gets out of his car and starts walking to me. Now, you're trained as a referee. That's not a good thing, right? As a referee, you, you, you'll, if you ever watch games and there's an argument, you'll see referees back away from players. This is why, right? Um, is you want them to, to take the first You don't care about that. But he's, he's walking to the car. He leans into my window and he starts complaining why referees take the game too seriously. I said... With my mouth full, <laughs> said it is eight o'clock in the morning on Saturday. I'm sitting here getting ready to referee like a dozen games. You walk all the way over here to complain about what happened yesterday against one of my teenage referees, and I'm the one that takes it too seriously. When the game's over with, I'm done with all of that. Move on with my life. Why are we having this conversation? You see what he, what he just did there. He will blame you for taking something too seriously that he himself has taken seriously. We do the same thing when, when we refuse to forgive. In our anger, in our malice, in our bitterness, in our envy, we drink a poison thinking they will die from it. And so something that happened last night, last week, last year, last decade, we think if we hold on to anger, if we hold on to our malice, if we hold on to our bitterness, we win. We win. And we don't see how it's, a, how it's corroding all of our other relationships, how it's corroding our very soul. And chances are that person you're still mad at has forgotten that you're even mad at them. Couldn't care less. You're complaining that they hurt you. All the while, you're letting them still hurt you. They've been on their lives. Forgiveness equals freedom. It's to say, yes, what you did is wrong. Yes, what happened was, was hurtful. Yes, it's going to be a while until, until I figure some of this stuff out. But you will not control me. Because grace is sufficient. I have been forgiven much. Surely I can forgive this little. You release the control they have over your life. Let me tell you, if, if we as Americans can grasp 
that, cities won't need to burn. We won't have to hate each other anymore. But when you leave behind the gospel, you leave behind the freedom and the peace that it gives. For, thirdly, I don't know what number one. I didn't even know what book we're in earlier. Forgiveness is an ongoing process. This is something that I think may be liberating for you. I believe you can, you should, right now, forgive. I also realize forgiveness is a process. Again, there is tension here, isn't there? We understand that we must forgive. But let me tell you, you must continue to forgive. Too often we, we, we approach forgiveness as something like, okay, it's done. No, 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 it's not. You were really wounded. You're watching yourself being cautious around certain people in certain places and certain events now, right? Why? Because you're still in that process of, of forgiveness. This is something our family and I, we, we've had to uh, uh, really, something we've noticed over the last 10 years or so. There, there, there's, there's some that, that I've, I've forgiven you, right? I'm still trying to forgive you all at the same time. Have you ever felt that tension? I think it's a very real tension. C.S. Lewis is right when he says, there is no use in talking as if forgiveness were easy. We all know the old joke. You, you've given up smoking once. I've given it up a dozen times. In the same way, I could say of a certain man, have I forgiven him for what he did that day? I've forgiven him more time than I can count. For we find that the work of forgiveness has to be done over and over and over again. There's something liberating about that, isn't it? Fourthly and finally, forgiveness takes courage. I think over the last year we've seen that. It's easy to choose malice. It's easy to choose hate. It's easy to choose bitterness and anger. Those are easy, aren't they? It's hard to forgive. It's courageous to forgive. Mercy doesn't come easy to follow man. John MacArthur in his sermon on this text says, one person has analyzed forgiveness in an interesting sort of prosaic way. He writes this, only the brave know how to forgive. It is the most refined and generous element of human virtue. Cowards have done good deeds and performed kind acts. Cowards have even fought and conquered, but cowards never forgive. It's not in their nature, their hearts. The power to forgive flows only from a strength and a greatness of soul, conscience of its own humility and security, and able to rise above all the little temptations of resenting every fruitless attempt to steal its happiness. And I agree. Anyone can conquer kingdoms. Anyone can rise to the top of corporate America. But only the courageous will forgive. We are a nation of those cowards who will not forgive. And too many within our churches aren't this courageous. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, probably his, his most famous book, certainly at least, at least his novels. This is a great scene where the Pemsey kids are meeting with Aslan, and they're, they're having this conversation. Uh, yeah, this is with the beavers, probably my favorite scene. The beavers explain Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he... Safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. I mean, he's a lion. He's the king, I tell you. But then you know what he said? 
course he's not safe. But he is good. He's not safe. But he is good. So too, we can say, forgiveness. It's not easy. But it is good. And why is it good? What's the point of this parable? Christ upon a cross has forgiven you far more than you will ever need to forgive anyone else. So too, dear Christian, having been forgiven much, can we learn to forgive a little? Let's pray.